so we've been doing this series, as John said, about the, the I am statements that Jesus made about himself. Um, and so today we're looking at I am the resurrection and the life. Um, those of you that have heard me preach before, you know that I tend to do things like emotional roller coasters. So uh, that's just how I do things. So take a deep breath, get ready. Um, and uh, we're going to dig into some truths about Jesus and how awesome he is. So we're going to have a read of the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, which is when Jesus gave this statement. And we're going to pull out some points that we can learn from from the whole story, and then we'll zone in on the I am the resurrection and the life that Jesus said. So this story is in John chapter 11, so you can be looking for that now. If you've got Bibles or if you've got a Bible on your app, a Bible app on your phone, you can uh, be looking for that now. But if not, it's going to magically appear behind me in a bit. So you don't need to worry. But first, I just want to put this story into the context of what's just happened in the life and works of Jesus. So John talked to us a couple of weeks ago um, about uh, the Good Shepherd and then um, about uh, I am the door and how this stirred up the Jewish leaders into a bit of a frenzy. They knew that Jesus was getting at them when he said these things. The Pharisees thought that they were the only ones that could lead people to God and to shepherd them, and that they were the only ones that could give access to God. So when Jesus came along saying that he was the only way to God, and that he was the leader of the Jewish people, obviously this this stirred up some anger and some nasty feelings towards Jesus. So in John 10, verse 22 onwards, we can read about Jesus going into the temple courts in Jerusalem. And the Pharisees accost Jesus and they say to him, tell us plainly, are you the son of God? And Jesus says that he's already told them, but they don't believe him. And then we read in John 10, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not good, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And then we find out that Jesus manages to escape, we don't really know how, but he manages to escape with his disciples across the Jordan, and they stay there for a while to let things calm down. So that's where we pick up today's story. They've come away from Jerusalem, and we're going to read... John chapter 11, starting at verse 1. There is quite a lot here. It's quite a long story, and I am going to read it all because I think it's really important that we have like the full context of what's going on here. So, uh, yeah, bear, bear with us. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again. 
Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? <clears throat> then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odour, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Wow, that's a pretty cool story, that, isn't it? <laughs> and that is the full story, which for me ends too soon. I want to know what happened next. You know, I want to hear about Mary and Martha's reactions. I want to know what, what the first words were that came out of Lazarus' mouth. 
I want to know about his experience of death and then coming back to life again. It is a roller coaster of emotion, from Jesus being threatened with stoning, to learning of his friend's illness and then his death, to mourning with Mary and Martha, and then to actually raising Lazarus from the dead. So first of all, let's have a look at Mary and Martha and their differing reactions to Jesus over the death of their brother. So they sent word to Jesus, first of all, that their brother was ill. They'd already seen that Jesus had performed many miracles, and they'd seen him heal people. They'd even seen him raise people from the dead. So they were probably expecting Jesus to show up as soon as possible to heal their brother. They knew that Jesus had a soft spot for all three of them. He, they knew that Jesus loved Lazarus and that, they, that he wouldn't want any harm to come to him. But Jesus doesn't come and Lazarus dies. And in fact, we hear that Lazarus has been dead for four days before Jesus arrives. Verse 20 tells us that Mary and Martha heard that Jesus was almost there and Martha went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Imagine how Mary must have been feeling at this point. Perhaps it's hard for us to get inside her head because we know how the story ends and we know that it's got a happy ending. But for Mary, she was in the depths of grief. She must have felt so confused about why Jesus didn't show up when she needed him most. She was maybe even angry with Jesus, feeling betrayed by him. So she withdrew and she couldn't face him. Or maybe she was so focused on the delay that she couldn't think of anything else. She couldn't understand why Jesus didn't just come to them when he heard Lazarus was sick. And maybe we feel this way sometimes too, but we have to rely on God's timing, not our own. He meets our needs according to his perfect schedule, not ours, which is limited in understanding. And it wasn't until Jesus asked for Mary that she actually came to him. It says that she went to him quickly, which sounds to me like she was on a bit of a mission, perhaps wanting to have it out with him. And when she arrived, she fell at his feet weeping. Now, I don't think that she was falling at his feet as an act of worship or submission. I think she was falling at his feet in brokenness and grief. She said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She was broken and grieving and taking it out on Jesus. She probably felt betrayed by Jesus. I thought you loved me. I thought you loved my brother. You could have prevented this from happening. And what did Jesus do with this? Jesus meets her in her grief. We hear how Jesus was deeply moved and how he wept. The Passion Translation says, tears streamed down Jesus' face. Jesus had already told his disciples that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, so he knew the end of the story. But in his compassion, he met Mary in her brokenness, not just comforting her, but actually allowing himself to feel her pain with her, weeping with her, feeling that sense of loss that she felt. I'm sure that most of us here have experienced the loss of a loved one, or even just a really painful situation. And it can be so hard to get through that. I know for myself, my Auntie Joy died 10 years ago now. And she was a really lovely, godly, amazing woman. And she often encouraged me in my faith. She was only in her 50s when she lost her battle with cancer. And it just seems so unfair and it doesn't make sense. 
And I'm sure that we've all been through similar experiences. I'm sure that we've asked God where he is and we don't seem to get an answer. We ask him why and he seems to not be there. But from this story, we know that Jesus meets us in our pain. So even if we feel betrayed by him or angry with him or like we want to turn our back on him, Jesus weeps with us and he experiences the same loss that we do. And as followers of Jesus, we can learn so much from his example. We know that Jesus sees the bigger picture. He knows that healing is right around the corner for Lazarus, but he still takes time to stop and comfort Mary. He knows how the story ends, but he still meets Mary in the depths of her grief. And I think we need to practice both elements of this in our lives too. We can tend to focus on one or the other. We either can become so consumed in sadness and grief that we can't see God at work. Or we solely focus on the fact that God is over and above everything that we can forget to come alongside people in their pain. But we need both. We need to comfort without dismissing people's pain. We need to allow ourselves to grieve in our own pain, but also keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus as the author of life over and above everything. So that's Mary and her reaction, but Martha has a very different reaction to the news that Jesus is on his way. She goes out to meet him, and we see this dialogue between her and Jesus as she tries to have faith that it's not too late, but she also struggles because she's faced with the reality of the loss of her brother. She says in verse 21 and 22, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So we can see that she's desperately trying to have faith that Jesus can raise her brother from the dead. But in the next breath, she says in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the last days. And even when they get to the tomb, it's her that says it shouldn't be opened because Lazarus has already been dead for four days. It's like she doesn't want to allow herself to think or believe that this could actually happen, that Jesus might move. She almost doesn't want to make a fool of herself for believing that Jesus will raise Lazarus from the dead. She's really wrestling with this. She's seen Jesus perform miracles. She's seen him raise people from the dead. She knows that Jesus has the power and authority to speak life into her brother, but she still doubts that he will do it. I don't know about you, but this is something that I struggle with all the time. I know Jesus can do it. I know that he wants to work all things together for the good of those who love him, which includes me. But I still sometimes doubt that Jesus will show up and move. But praise God that he isn't reliant on my faith to move. And Jesus wasn't reliant on the faith of Mary, Martha, the disciples or the crowd to be able to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus doesn't get his power and authority from our faith levels. It's not like a faith tank that gets filled up and then the faith level reaches the top and then that gives Jesus permission to act. Here we see a clear example of very little faith, but Jesus performs perhaps the most extravagant miracle of raising someone from the dead, someone who had been dead for four days already. Don't get me wrong, I think faith is so important. 
but perhaps our focus needs to shift a little bit to faith in Jesus rather than on the things that he can do for us. We need to get to a place where we ultimately have faith and trust in Jesus that even if things don't work out the way we had hoped, we still know that Jesus is working all things together for our good. We pray and we ask God for what we believe is right, but we also have to be ready to say, yet your will be done and trust that his will is perfect. And I believe that this is the kind of faith that Martha had. She wants Lazarus to be alive again, of course she does. And she has this dialogue with Jesus where Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And she knows this to be true, she trusts Jesus, but she thinks he's referring to the last days when all will be resurrected. And it's within this context that Jesus gives us this statement, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And Martha says, yes, she does believe. And at this moment, she declares Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. And she's saying, I don't get what you're going to do, Lord. I don't understand what's happening right now, but I trust you. So that's Mary and Martha, Mary who avoids and even blames Jesus, but is met in her grief. And Martha who has faith in Jesus and trusts him, yet both of them receive a miracle. So let's have a quick look at Jesus and the disciples. The disciples are actually only mentioned at the beginning of the story because the main focus then becomes Mary, Martha and of course Lazarus. But we can see from the start that in their usual naive way, Despite walking with Jesus and seeing him perform miracles, they still don't really fully understand that Jesus has power over death. So they get word that Lazarus is sick, but Lazarus is near Jerusalem. The disciples have just witnessed the Jewish leaders wanting to stone Jesus, so understandably they don't want to go back there. They don't want to return to Jerusalem because they're scared, fearing that they and Jesus will be killed. None of the disciples are up for this, except Thomas. Now, I think Thomas gets a really bad press. You know, he's so often remembered as doubting Thomas, isn't he? Because he didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead until he saw it with his own eyes. But here he is, the only disciple that says he's willing to go back to Jerusalem and risk his life. And it's him that actually convinces the other disciples to go, saying, let us also go, that we may die with him. He was the only one of the 12 disciples that, came, uh, that overcame his fear of death in order to follow Jesus. So he's pretty incredible, really. So next time you hear of Doubting Thomas, just remember that about him. He was the only one that was willing to face death. Anyway, we can see that the majority of the disciples fear death. And we don't get to hear about their reactions to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. They're not mentioned again in this story. But I imagine they got a much better grasp of Jesus being the resurrection and the life as he demonstrated the power he has over life and death through the raising of Lazarus. So throughout this, we can see that Jesus has no fear when it comes to death. In fact, he refers to dying as falling asleep, showing that death isn't the end. When we fall asleep in death, we will awaken again. Jesus understands and he's got a full knowledge of what awaits him on the other side after death. 
He knew he was going to be killed at some point, but he knew that the timing wasn't right yet. He knew that Lazarus had died, and he declares that he's going to wake him up. The disciples didn't get it, but Jesus knew the bigger picture. He knows that death isn't the end, but is just the beginning. You might have heard of an evangelist, author and speaker called Francis Chan. He's um, done quite a few books. And he does this fantastic demonstration to explain eternity. And he has a really long length of rope. And he asks us to imagine, he holds the end of it, and he asks us to imagine that it kind of goes on forever, for eternity. And he says that this rope is a timeline of our existence and that we will exist forever. And at the start of the rope that he's holding, he's maybe got a couple of inches that is just covered in red tape. And you can see the red tape and then the rest of the rope is white and goes on forever. And he uses this to represent the red bit being our short time on earth. And then the whole of the rest of it is eternity. But when we're stuck here in this little red bit, that seems to be all we can see. Maybe we can, you know, save money so that we can enjoy our retirement, which is just at the end of this little couple of inches. Uh, we save our money so that we can uh, have a nice summer holiday or even just, you know, we live for the weekend. But Francis Chan is making this point that we need to widen our perspective and live now in these little two inches as if we're planning for the rest of eternity. It's a really great demonstration, and if you, if you want to hear it in its fullness, then it's on YouTube, and you can just search for Francis Chan Rope Illustration, and it's really worth your time. It's only four minutes long, but it really gets you thinking and changes your perspective on eternity. So Jesus had this perspective of eternity. He understood that. He saw eternity because he had left eternity to come down to earth. But what did Jesus actually mean when he said, I am the resurrection and the life? What does it tell us about him and about us? When looking at the story of Lazarus, I found this quote from a guy called Chris Jones, who um, runs the Garden City Project. And he says, this is one of the clearest, most passionate and love-stricken stories in the New Testament. It shows Jesus' love for his people from a human standpoint and his hatred towards the perils of death from a deity's standpoint. Jesus joins in the grief of his people, yet he enters like a warrior, girded with the belt of truth. Though he weeps, he affirms to Martha that his power is still supreme over death. He not only stops to comfort his people, but also to remind them of his resurrection power that is beyond what we call natural. And I think that quote sums up this whole story beautifully. It's this idea that Jesus loves his people, he mourns with us, and he hates death. And he enters like a warrior to conquer death. I love the imagery of this, and it reminded me of the description of Jesus in Revelation 1. Where John has a vision of Jesus conquering all. And he says in verses 17 and 18... When I saw him, that's Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So when Jesus says to Martha that he is the resurrection and the life, 
he's first of all declaring that he's got power over death. Life is the opposite of death. And relationship with Jesus is that life. I'm going to do one of those moments like Paul does in his letter to the Corinthians where he says, I, not the Lord. Just to be clear that after some prayer, thought and research that this is a conclusion that I have reached. But there are many theologians out there who are far more intelligent and far more qualified than I am who take the opposite view and disagree with me. So you can take it or leave it, what I'm about to say. Or preferably do your own praying and seeking on this issue. But I believe, and this is I, not the Lord... <laughs> that you get another chance after you die. Controversial. <laughs> from my understanding of the nature and character of God and from this picture in Revelation that we've just looked at, that is carried on throughout the book of Revelation, of Jesus overcoming and Jesus holding the keys to death. That's Jesus with the keys, not the devil. I believe that when we die and are faced with Jesus, we get a chance to say, God, I'm sorry for how I lived. I'm sorry for how I spent that red bit of the rope. I should have put you first in my life, and I didn't. But I want to spend eternity with you now. And my reason for that is that I know that Jesus wants to be in relationship with us. He would do anything to be in relationship with us to the point where he sacrificed his own life. God is a God of second chances, which is evident throughout the Bible from start to finish. Not just second chances, but third and fourth and fifth and sixth chances. And Jesus holds the keys to death. His hands are not tied. He's in charge. He gets the final say, in my humble opinion. <laughs> and I'm not saying this to make myself feel better either, because I'm blessed to have only lost loved ones who are walking with Jesus. But Jesus is life and has power over death. And we can experience that life now by walking with Jesus, which is by far the best way to do it now. Jesus has a plan and a purpose for each of us on this earth, which I believe prepares us for our purpose in eternity. And there you all were thinking we'd just be sitting around sunbathing in heaven. I don't believe that's true at all. I believe that God has a plan and purpose for each one of us that doesn't just end because we've died. I believe that the work we do here and now on our hearts and minds comes with us to eternity. I believe we keep learning after we die, so we may as well get started now. So it's our responsibility to seek God now and start on that journey of discovering our purpose with him. I'm currently reading the New Testament in the Passion Translation, and it's taking me a while because I'm also reading all the footnotes as I go through it. And when I was reading John 11, verse 25, which is where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, the footnote says, Resurrection is superior to life, for life can be defeated and ended, but resurrection overcomes. Life is the power to exist, but resurrection is the power to conquer all, even death itself. So when Jesus says he is the resurrection, this points to our resurrection because it was said in the context of Lazarus being raised from the dead, but it also points to the resurrection of Jesus as he is the resurrection and rose again after being crucified. It wasn't long after Jesus performed this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead that he was crucified. In fact, this was perhaps even the last straw for the Pharisees. 
who were already out to get Jesus, and they wanted Lazarus dead as well. We know what happens next, because Jesus dies. But we also know that he rose again, showing once and for all that he has the power over death. We have several accounts in the Gospels of Jesus' resurrection, where the women went to the tomb and found it empty. Luke 24, verses 5 to 7, gives us the details of this, where two angels say to the women, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And not long after that, Jesus walks with two men who are leaving the city on the road to Emmaus. The Bible tells us that they are downcast as they walk along because they thought that Jesus was coming to save them. It sounds like they don't really believe the report that Jesus has risen from the dead. I'm lost where I am. (laughs) But Jesus reprimands them and he says... O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So we know and believe that Jesus is the resurrection in the physical sense because he rose from the dead. And it's because of his resurrection that we can be raised from the dead and continue to live. We heard before that Jesus referred to death as sleep, and that's perhaps how it will feel. We fall asleep in death and then are awakened and resurrected. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will raise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Because Jesus came back to life, so will all who believe in him. Of course, it's upsetting when our loved one dies, and it's so normal and natural for us to grieve. But this passage clearly tells us that death is not the end of the story. That we will see them again, in the same way that Paul is comforting the Thessalonians, we also need to take comfort from this message from the promise of the resurrection, knowing that one day all of God's people will stand together united, safe and secure in the presence of God, with no more pain or suffering, which is how it was meant to be from the very beginning. So as we come to a close, that's what we believe will happen in the last days, but what impact should this have on our lives now? I said before that Jesus is the resurrection in the physical sense, as he physically rose from the dead. But Jesus is the resurrection for us now in the spiritual sense. When we give our lives to God, we decide that we are going to follow him. And it's like we've been reborn or we've died and been resurrected from our old lives. And this is partly what baptism represents, the washing away of the old, 
leaving it down there in the murky waters and rising again, a new creation with a new way of life in Jesus. Colossians 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So this passage brings the two elements together for us, both physical and spiritual, saying that one day we will rise in the physical sense and perhaps get a new body or whatever you believe in that, whatever your theology is. But also we've already died and been resurrected in the spiritual sense because we no longer live how we used to. We can live in freedom, no longer dead in sin or held back by things that are damaging us, but free in the new life that Jesus gives us. Some of us are born again, but perhaps we still live as though we're not. Perhaps we're still caught up in behaviour that is destructive or thought patterns and behaviours that don't honour God. So maybe after today we can take a step back, get a hold of that bigger picture, a new perspective on life, planning for eternity rather than this life, and we'll be more readily able to set our minds on things above. So what does this new life in Jesus look like? Well, it looks like not being controlled by addictions, by career, by diet, by relationships, by social media, by fashion, by material possessions, by circumstances. It means being able to let go and follow Jesus no matter what, no holding back. It means reading the word of God, not because you have to, as part of a checklist for being a good Christian, but because you want to, so you can hear God speak into your life. It means a prayer life where you talk to God and allow him space to talk back, not because you have to, but because you want to have that intimate relationship with God. It means passionately serving in the church, not because it's your duty, but because you understand that it's a privilege to serve God in his house. It means sacrifice of your time, your energy, your resources, your money, Again, not out of duty, but because you would do anything for the God you love. This is what it looks like to truly grasp hold of Jesus as the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. Thank you that you give us life. Thank you that you died and rose again so that we might live in freedom now, here on earth, and also for eternity. Help us to let go of the things that are causing a barrier between you and us. Help us to pursue an intimate relationship with you, not out of duty, but out of love for you, and out of gratefulness for all you have done for us. Help us to learn from your word and from this story of Lazarus, to learn and remember that you are with us in our pain, that your timing is perfect, and that you work things together for our good. Help us to be more like you. Help us, Lord, to set our minds on the things of heaven. Help us to live for you, to have that eternal perspective of the kingdom of heaven, to live our lives with that in mind, no longer living for ourselves, but living for you. Psalm 61 in the Passion Translation says, 
You have heard my sweet resolutions to love and serve you, for I am your beloved. You have given me an inheritance of rich treasures, which you give to all your devoted lovers. You treat me like a king, giving me a full and abundant life, years and years of reigning, like many generations rolled into one. I will live enthroned with you forever. Guard me, God, with your unending, unfailing love. Let me live my days walking in grace and truth before you. And my praises will fill the heavens forever, fulfilling my vow to make every day a love gift to you.